This is IbarianX, and this is The Candid Frame. Photography can and does play a variety of roles in our lives. Some of us earn a living making photographs, while others enjoy it as a creative outlet. The images that we create, whether of our families, landscapes, news events, or even things we grow in a garden, are a personal expression of how we see and experience the world. And sometimes that personal expression is about more than telling a visual story in pictures. The act of creating photographs can be the means by which we give meaning to challenging and difficult circumstances. In many cases, photography can be the treatment for healing a deep and painful wound. For photojournalist Mike McCoy, photography was one of the tools he used to deal with his PTSD after his military service during the Iraq War. But recognizing and accepting this diagnosis did not come quickly or easily. It, it took a while, and, and even to this day, man, I'm still figuring it out. And that's another reason why I lent to this camera, because, you know, this camera is, is my therapy. You know, if you see some some soldiers and individuals that walk around with service dogs, you know, my camera is my service dog. You know, without my camera, I, I could be a bit lost. And, you know, it kind of gives me that confidence to, you know, to push through. His personal project, Invisible Wounds, has provided him the means to explore the impact of PTSD, not only on himself, but on other veterans, and has helped many of them to understand that they are not alone. But this project might never have started at all if it were not for the encouragement of another photographer. You know, when I was doing the uh, Invisible Wounds, I wasn't even going to take my camera. But um, one of my good buddies and a former guest of yours, Jamal Shabazz, told me, he said, hey, man, you need to get that camera. And I'm like, nah, bro, I'm going to leave the camera home. And he said, why? I said, because I need to go work on me. And uh, he said, well, you can work on you. He said, but he ain't going to be busy all the time. He said, take that camera, man. And um, just so happened, put the camera in the bag. And um, once I got there, you know, it, it just felt good being around, you know, other, other soldiers, sailors, Marines, black, white, male, and female who have gone through, you know, similar trials and tribulations. It, it just started. And when I started taking these photographs, at the time, it, it wasn't a project. It was more of just, we're out of therapy, we're just kicking it, and, you know, we're just doing what we're doing. We'll talk to Mike about how his training in military service has helped him in his career as a photojournalist, and how his relationship with his hometown of Baltimore has shaped him both as a kid and a mature adult. Welcome to The Candid Frame. All right. Well, Michael, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a real pleasure pleasure to have a chance to sit down and talk with you. Uh, thanks for having me, man. You know, it's, it's really a, a, kind of a fascinating time in which to be um, a, a photographer who tells stories and a, and a photojournalist. Even though, you know, newspapers and magazines have taken a hit, um, there's, a, I think, a freedom that a lot of photographers have in terms of 
telling personal stories. They may have a little much of a challenge in terms of going out and finding an outlet for them. But in terms of being able to go out and taking the initiative to tell stories, I think it's a really sort of fascinating, fascinating time, especially for a photographer of color. And I want to kind of start there in terms of, you know, where your passions lie in terms of the kinds of stories that you are sort of gravitating towards. Because you've worked on a variety of different projects, but I'd like to take it from from that angle to, to start. Um, and that's, that's a good starting point, man. Um, you know, first and foremost, you know, being a, a photographer of color, you know, whether you're a photojournalist, documentary photographer, street photographer, portrait photographer, we're, we're faced with challenges. That challenge is diversity. And, um, you know, thanks to platforms like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, gives you the opportunity to get your work out to people who otherwise, you know, wouldn't have a chance to see your work. You know, especially, you know, i.e. photo editors. And everyone knows, you know, if you're like in journalism or documentary photographies, the majority of the photo editors are people who don't look like us. Mm-hmm. You know, we often get lost in the uh, in the mix. And, you know, by having that platform, you know, allows you to go out and share through your eyes. And, you know, hopefully that grabs the attention of a photo editor. And, you know, sometimes it does. And, you know, it kind of gives them a, a different outlook on, you know, life. Do you, did you find that in terms of your, your photo projects, that your personal projects, that they were mostly inspired by your personal interest and passion for the subject? Or were you looking at them in terms of maybe this can get my foot into the door? I don't want to say to get my foot in the door. I mean, everything was inspired by my passions and, you know, my life. So everything I shoot on the personal side are issues that I can personally relate to, you know, whether it's PTSD, whether it's social injustice. And, you know, I use that, those projects and that platform as a way to give those less fortunate, you know, without a voice, a voice to be heard. Because otherwise, those individuals kind of go, you know, unheard. Tell me about one of your early personal projects um, to show, but I sort of flesh this out a, a little more. What did you choose to, to focus on and why? Back during the unrest of Freddie Gray. That right there hit me pretty close to home because I'm born and raised in Baltimore. And uh, Freddie, he lived about maybe 10 blocks away from, from where I grew up. It, it really hurt me to my heart knowing that the city that I grew up in was going up in flames. You know, people were angry. People were pissed off. A, a lot of that comes from the corruption of the police department and the tensions. And, you know, I can remember even as a child, Baltimore predominantly black, police officer majority white. So, you know, there's always friction. I mean, you would have police officers that would police our neighborhoods who can't relate to the individuals who live in the neighborhoods. And with those officers not being able to relate, it kind of impairs the judgment. Yeah. And, you know, so for me, I felt it was my job and my duty to go document that and show people that just because you live in West Baltimore doesn't necessarily make you a bad person. And just because you are a police officer doesn't make you a bad person. Mm. You know, you just have two different parties who are misunderstood. And Donald Trump says, I mean, there are good people on both sides. T- tell me about coming up in Baltimore. Uh, especially in terms of relationship, you know, with not only police, but, you know, people in authority in your community who don't necessarily live there. How did how did that sort of shape the way that you saw them and saw yourself within that community? You know, growing up in Baltimore, I mean, it's, it's a unique experience. You know, 
most folks don't grow up in Baltimore, so a lot of people can't, really can't relate. But, uh, I mean, Baltimore has made me the person that I am today. I mean, it made me book smart. It made me street smart. It, it pretty much taught me how to think. And when it comes to thinking, and especially being a photographer, you have to be able to think fast and think with your feet. And then as I got older, I joined the military. And that right there contributed to my thought process as well. So I'm lucky to... I'm lucky that I had the ability to grow up in Baltimore and then later join the military and where I can combine all of my life experiences so that I can just be the person that I am today and, you know, produce the work that I produce. But what what helped you to be able to make the, you know, the better choices? Because I grew up in South L.A., so I had similar circumstances, though, you know, L.A. is much more expansive and it's not as concentrated as Baltimore, I think. Anyone who grows up in sort of an urban environment like that has relatively similar experiences. What what were the forces that really sort of encouraged you to to make choices that didn't result in you getting into trouble, for lack of a better word? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say I never got in trouble. I mean, I never got caught. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no, but, first, but first and foremost, you know, I got to thank God, and I've got to thank my mother. God bless her soul. I, I was always scared to, to get in trouble, so... Every time that I would get ready to do something that I had no business doing, I would always think of my mother saying, hey, mm-hmm. don't do that. I want to kick your ass. But, you know, growing up in a, in a city, you know, we, we really don't have positive male figures. So a lot of us end up making choices that, that aren't right. But if we don't really have an idea of what right looks like, it, it's kind of difficult. And I just thank God that, you know, I was able to be on the street and uh, narrow yeah, because it's really kind of interesting to see not only what happened with me, but a lot of the guys in the neighborhood. How some, you know, some guys, you know, went out there. They may have not gotten a college education, but they gotten jobs and you know, raising raising a family. And then with my younger brother, man, in his twenties, I couldn't believe how many funerals he attended before he was thirty, and it was just heartbreaking. And you know, when I walk into his room and I would see the funeral cards, you know, all all these guys who just gone. I mean, not, some of it was not due to the violence. Some was just health stuff. And just the idea that people so young with so much potential for a variety of different reasons couldn't make it through. Right. I mean, they, they, they just weren't given the, the proper opportunities. I mean, you'll be surprised. You know, everybody thinks just because someone's a drug dealer, they're a bad person. I mean, if you look at guys like Little Melvin from Baltimore, Rafael Evans from Washington, D.C., they were some of the biggest kingpins, but I mean, these guys had the IQ of, you know, your Bill Gates or your Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these men weren't given the opportunities to excel. And if they had those opportunities, I mean, God knows where those guys would be now. You know, I'm not glorifying what they did, but hell, I mean, those guys made a lot of money. And, and the amount of money those guys were making back in those days, and if they, those were like legit businesses, I mean, hell, those would probably be like Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies. Mm-hmm. So tell me, uh, what led you to sign up in the military, and where did you serve? It's funny that you say that. Um, as a kid, it was always a dream of mine. At the time, my mother was pregnant with my little sister. She was in Pennsylvania, and I would visit my grandmother, especially my mom was pregnant. She was giving birth, and there was a National Guard uh, armory right around the corner. And, and I, was, I mean, it had been like gay tall, mm-hmm. and I would hear stories about how I would find my way through the door and stop the guys in, in the middle of the street. You know, the guys would stop. They would, you know, pick me up, let me get in the truck. And uh, my folks said, hey, man, you, you were just hooked from that, that moment on. <laughs> <laughs> and as I got older, I figured I want to stay alive. I kind of want to do something positive. You know, I want to have a job that could 
eventually turn into a career, something that kind of offers me some type of benefits later down the line. You know, I chose the military. And where did you end up serving? Um, I wound up serving in the Army. Um, I did five years. And out of those five years, I spent two years in Iraq. And uh, my, my first trip to Iraq was in 2004 to 2005. You know, we came back maybe about a year or so, and it was, it was back out again. While I was in Iraq, my second tour, my mother passed away. Mm. Yeah, that must have been heartbreaking. Yeah, and, you know, that, that right there changed my life. How so? That, that was my mom. Mom Dukes right there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can remember, like, my, my first deployment, you know, me lying to my mother, telling her it was safe <laughs> in Iraq. Funny story, man, I had a little camera, and, you know, I would take, well, this is before self. And I would take the pictures of myself, say, hey, mom, you know, we got Santa Claus over here. But, you know, why does Santa Claus, you know, have a big assault rifle, and he's standing next to a tank? And in my head, you know, we just face these props here. Mm-hmm. You know, just to make it feel calm. So had you picked up a camera before you had uh, left for the military? Um, you know, as a kid, my dad had a little film camera he was having the car, and I would play around with it, not really knowing what I was doing with it. As I, as I got older, and, you know, just like any other guy, you start meeting girls, and, you know, you become too cool for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you put that camera down. But um, it wasn't until I got to Iraq, you know, like I said, before taking pictures, sending them to my mother, and then some of my battle buddies, you know, I would take pictures for them, too, so they can send home to their families. You know, that's always the source of motivation of Iraq. You know, because I'm not sure if you've been to Iraq or Afghanistan, but, I mean, those places are, like, unbearable. And, you know, we need every bit of, like, motivation and morale that we can get. And, you know, just seeing the joy of those guys' faces, you know, I'm just like, damn, you know. But um, it, it wasn't until I got out so my mother died. I lost my mother. I lost my cousin. I lost my uncle. I lost my father. I lost, like, five family members in, like, a maybe an 18-month time span. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized you, know, you can't come back and, and catch up on the, everything that you missed. You can't catch up on the parties that you missed, the clubs, the drinking. So, you know, why not just get into this photography thing and, and start documenting everything? And, you know, one thing I told myself, I can't let another day go by without, you know, having the camera and having the ability to, to document life. You know, at the end of the day, you know, it's all about, you know, document history. You know, history is what? It's his story. So while you were there, you mentioned, you know, using the photograph to sort of document your time there. But did you start thinking in terms of story while you were there? I wasn't. While I was there, man, only thing I was thinking about was staying alive and making it home. Hmm. I kind of wish I did. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there were a lot of stories there, you know, good and bad. Yeah, because a lot of guys just didn't, didn't make it back. And uh, even if you did, it doesn't mean, as you, as you document in, in one of your personal projects, I think it's called Invisible Wounds, that there's a lot of stuff that comes back with you, even if you do manage to survive. What was that transition like for you after you did get out and you got back, back home and started sort of adjusting to the world that you had left it behind that, that not only had changed, but you had changed as well? Um, I mean, it, it hit me kind of differently. I was diagnosed with PTSD. And in my mind, I knew I had it, but I was telling myself I didn't have it. Hmm. You know, at the time, I worked a job. I kicked it with the fellas. I got introduced to golf as a form of uh, uh, therapy. And I said, you know what, man? I don't have any problems. Everything's okay. As life went on, man, I started realizing, like, hey, you know, I, I really have issues. And, you know, you would go places and you don't want to be in really large crowds. You want to be able to see the exit. And I mean, I'm starting to notice, you know, that's not normal. You know, how long, how long after you got back did you start 
thinking maybe there's something going on with me. Uh, it, it took a while, and even to this day, man, I'm still figuring it out. And that's another reason why I lent you this camera because you know this camera is is my therapy. You know, if you see some some soldiers and individuals that walk around with service dogs, you know, my camera is my service dog. You know, without mm-hmm. my camera, I, I could be a bit lost. And you know, it kind of gives me confidence to push through. Was that the impetus to, to, to work on that project where you were photographing and interacting with other servicemen? You know, when I was doing the uh, Invisible Wounds, I wasn't even going to take my camera. One of my good buddies and a, and a former guest of yours, Jamal Shabazz, told me, they said, hey, man, you need to get that camera. And I'm like, nah, bro, I'm going to leave the camera home. Mm-hmm. He said, why? I said, because I need to go work on me. And uh, he said, well, you can work on you. He said, but he ain't going to be busy all the time. He said, take that camera, man. Just what happened? Put the camera in the bag. Once I got there, you know, it, it just felt good being around, you know, other other soldiers, sailors, Marines, black, white, male, and female who have gone through, you know, similar trials and tribulations. It, it just started. And when I started taking these photographs, at the time, it, it wasn't a project. It was more of just, we're out of therapy. We're just kicking it. And, you know, we're just doing what we're doing. It, it wasn't until, like, some of the guys' wives we're like, damn, you make my husband look good in these pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's like, yo, man, can you take my picture? And I'm like, nah, man, you ain't want it before. But, uh, I mean, it was a good experience. It, it felt good, you know, giving some of these guys photographs because, you know, some of these guys don't like being photographed, for one. Two, some of these guys haven't been photographed since the military. And, you know, in the military, once you get that photograph, everybody thinks that's your military photograph. That's your uh, obituary photograph. Mm. You know, so whenever you go to combat, you know, those, those photographs you see, that's your, you know, hey, I'm dead photograph. And so guys just didn't want to even see him be photographed because they associated with, yeah. oh, man, I never thought about or heard about that. That is, that is deep, man. You know, and, and, and I didn't learn what that photograph was until I got to Korea. You know, in basic training, you took a picture in uniform mm-hmm. and you just thought, hey, I'm in the Army, now I'm going to take a picture. Yeah. But, you know, right before I was going to Iraq for the first time, we don't have to take, like, updated photos. And took the photo, and the photographer who took the photograph was like, hey, you know what this photo means, right? I'm like, nah, this is a you know, regular photo. It's enough. You know, just in case you get killed, you know, this is the photo you're going to use. You know, whether it be in the news, your obituary, mm-hmm. you know. Man, that is way too real. <laughs> when you were amongst those guys, you know, getting the, get, getting the therapy, how did, that, how did that feel being around guys where, and probably women, who you didn't have to explain yourself to? Because no, I, we didn't. I mean, it, it felt really good. I mean, I mean, like living in a world with PTSD, we, we, we often feel like nobody can understand us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most people don't understand. You know, everybody, uh, I'm not sure the actual number, but I want to say like maybe 1% of all Americans, I think 9% of all Americans served in the military. And I want to say maybe like 1% of Americans, you know, served in combat. Yeah. You know, those numbers can be wrong. So please don't quote me, guys. I'll get accurate numbers and send it back. But, you know, a lot of people can't relate. So, you know, being in an environment where you have people that are, you know, black, people that are white, people who may be gay or lesbian that serve, you know, it's like a sense of relief. You know, it's like a world was inside of a world. I count myself lucky that I get to spend much of my time 
doing what I love to do, at least on most days. On a day-to-day basis, I get to be immersed in photography. Even when I'm not making my own photographs, I get to look at great work by some of the world's best photographers. And on occasion, I actually have the chance to sit down and chat with them for an hour. It is not lost on me that by following an impulse to start this show 13 years ago, I've created something for myself that's that's very special. But none of that would have been possible if I didn't have you as a listener. Not only have you downloaded episodes for months, even years, you have been incredibly encouraging and patient as this show has gone through several iterations, some more successful than others. At the heart of it, it's been your belief in the work that we do that has helped keep the wheels greased and allowed this machine to keep moving. And your recent financial support has been a big part of that, especially now as we near our 500th episode. We are so close to reaching our goal of 100 new Patreon supporters. For us, it's not just a number. It's confirmation that we are doing exactly what we are meant to do. By becoming a Patreon supporter and committing to a reoccurring donation of $5 or more a month, you are making a huge difference. Without your help, all of this wouldn't be possible. So sign up today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame or click on the link in the show notes or the candid frame website. Thank you. You know, when people think of PTSD, I think they think of a lot of stereotypical images, you know, stuff they see on TVs and movies where someone is really sort of acting out. Uh, But from what little life I've sort of read and, and, and seen myself is that it can manifest in a whole variety of different ways. And, you know, when you when you were photographing these guys and you started, you know, really sort of engaging them, not only in terms of your own therapy and your own sort of recovery, but in terms of making these photographs, what did you come to understand about PTSD that you didn't realize just from your own experience? I, I learned a lot, man. Now, most importantly, I learned that PTSD isn't the end of the world. You know, although people may judge you, but, I mean, you can't let that get to you. I mean, yeah, you may feel some type of way, but, you know, it, it also let me know that I wasn't in this, anything by myself. Mm. Whether it was dealing with the veterans in a photograph or, you know, me photographing someone, and let's say a place like Southeast D.C. or West Baltimore, where people in those environments too also live with PTSD. The only difference is, I mean, it may not be documented and they may not be receiving some type of benefit, but growing up in a a city, you experience, you know, shootings, you know, all sorts of trauma, you know, that's PTSD. So tell me about, you know, making the camera your career. When did that start coming into into play? Um, (laughs) You know, since getting out, you know, I would, you know, shoot here and there and I realized, hey, man, I'm pretty good at this. And, you know, I would just freelance, and I'm still a freelancer to this day. And, um, you know, I was freelance for a few small publications, you know, in the, in the D.C. area. You know, I worked a regular job. And I realized that this job that I, that I worked kind of contributed to my PTSD. And um, my doctor said, hey, man, you need to take some time away and, you know, work on yourself. And, you know, and that's when I went to this uh, PTSD treatment facility. And uh, once I got out, my doctor said, hey, you need to like really take some time off. 
and since I took the time off, you know, I just started, you know, focusing more on my photography, trying to read books, study the works of, you know, great photographers, you know, shout out to Jamel Shabazz, Ruddy Roy, mm-hmm. even some of the younger guys, you know, Adrian Solomon, Michael Santiago, Anthony B. Gathers. And, you know, by doing that, I was able to sit there and focus on my craft and, and I just managed to get more work here today. But you know, the thing about getting this work, I mean, it, it, it's, it comes and it goes. Yeah. You know, recently I, I started doing some stuff with Reuters. Uh, you know, I got my first assignment with Reuters a few weeks ago. They let me do a portrait project at the uh, Women's March. And, uh, you know, the editors were like, hey, man, you know, we're, we're like blown away by this. And uh, they said, hey, we definitely love working with you. And uh, I pitched an idea. And, you know, normally when I pitch ideas, they always get shot down. <laughs> Shout out to Jim. But uh, Jim, hey, man, that's, that's an awesome idea. You got my blessing. And, um, you know, we just got uh, over the, the partial government shutdown. And I met this young lady, and I saw her interview on CNN, and she was a security guard. And she got hired, and her first day of work would have been, like, the day after shutdown. So this lady couldn't go to work. And I saw this lady's interview on CNN and like, man, this thing like hit me so hard. And um, you know, I reached out to her and I said, hey, you know, I'm a freelance photojournalist and uh, you know, I want to come and you know, document you, tell your story. I went out and you know, Reuters decided to run that story, kind of went from there. Yeah, I think people are often surprised by how, how open people can be about inviting a perfect stranger with a camera into their lives. And people always ask me the same question. If you can, if you can relate to your subject and your subject can relate to you, it's just like you're not even there. Hmm. You know, like when I went to, to this lady's house last week to photograph her, you know, she felt so comfortable. I mean, I was just shooting like, like I wasn't even in the room. Yeah. Was that something that came easy for you? Yes and no. It, I, I really didn't get comfortable with that until I went to the uh, PTSD group. Huh. And that right there taught me because everybody loved me. We, we loved each other. And developing that, that level of comfort with somebody was something that I had to learn. Yeah. You know, before the program, you know, I would try and I would get decent images. But I learned that if you were to let your subject become more comfortable, your work would be like way, way better. You know, if I have time, if I'm going to work on something, you know, I'll try not to take a camera around. Now I may have it in my bag, but I, I wouldn't use it. Yeah. You know, just to make that person feel you know, comfortable. I'm going to ask you a question, and this may be a little bit of a stretch, so excuse okay. me if, if it is, but I'm, I'm wondering that during your time in the service and because of all your training and all your experience in the, you know, in a, in a conflict area, you, you get to be really hypersensitive to the smallest things, especially when you're out in patrol or, or you're in an area where there's peril sort of involved. And there's just like this constant level of just observation and assessment. And I'm wondering whether that attention to like the small things, has that sort of influenced when you are telling a story, how you photograph it? You know, most definitely. I mean, it's all about paying attention to detail. It's always those small details that make the great photographs. You know, it could be something small that the average person may look by. For example, you know, this, this project I did with this young lady, you know, going through the furlough, you know, most photojournalists, you know, kind of look past that because, you know, that may not be a big time news story. Mm-hmm. So, you know, by paying attention to, you know, the smaller things. But what were some of the small things that you picked up on that you f- felt that were really important to telling the story visually? 
No, I mean, this, this lady's story in general. I mean, I mean you, didn't, you don't see photojournalists knocking down the doors of the federal government employees who have been affected by the shutdown. Mm-hmm. Everybody's focusing on, you know, the White House, you know, Nancy Pelosi, you know, and Congress. You know, just even with like veterans of PTSD, you know, you don't really see people documenting and, and speaking about mental illness. Yeah. And, I, and I think those issues definitely need more representation. And I'm, I'm glad that I'm able to document those things. Tell me about, you mentioned earlier the whole issue that was happening in Baltimore with the demonstrations about, you know, the relationship between the cops and, you know, and the African-American and, and probably Latino community that's out there in, in Baltimore. When it came time for you sort of go out there with, with a camera, you said that it affected you deeply, you know, that it hurt, that it made you angry. But in terms of the kinds of photographs that you chose to make, how did those strong feelings sort of inform what you wanted people to see in your photographs? You know, most importantly, you know, I wanted people to see that there is also a good side. And, you know, just because the area may not look as good, still good. And you know, most importantly, you know, myself and even you, you know, I am very great. You know, I am Eric Gardner. Mm-hmm. I am, you know, Tamir Rice. And, you know, I like to use my camera as a tool so that I can, you know, hopefully affect the lives of some young black man, some young Latino man, so that that person may not, you know, head on their path. So let's talk about the the hustle, you know, because as okay. a freelance photographer, it's all about that. Because regardless of how talented or not talented you may be, uh, it's all <laughs> about about the hustle, especially now that there are few staff photographer positions anywhere. So, so tell me about that part of being a professional photographer in Baltimore. I didn't really realize how much of a hustle it was until I attended the, the um New York Times portfolio review. And I mean, I was fortunate enough to go last year. For those who don't know, the New York Times portfolio review was uh, pretty much like the speed dating of photography. <laughs> yeah. You get 15 minutes to meet with an editor and pitch. And I, I believe there were like over 2,800 applicants. And it's broken wow. down into like two days. They, they pick 100 people for Saturday and 50 for Sunday. So I went on Saturday. And the requirements were, I think, had to be ages 25 and above. And then Sunday was for ages 25 and under. I didn't really realize how tough it was until I got there. And, you know, I'm sitting there meeting with some of the, like, best, like, photo editors in, like, the freaking world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just having the privilege to show these guys my work and, and get their feedback. I didn't get no work out of it at the time. <laughs> I, mean, I thought I did. But, you know, just coming back and with the concepts that I made and the, and the friends that I made while I was there, it, it just showed me that, hell, I'm not the only photographer out here that has good work. And you're competing with, like, everybody. While I was there, I, I met a group of guys, and we, we chat every day on a WhatsApp app, and we call ourselves Black Shutter. And it's a group of uh, black photographers, male and female. One thing that we do... You know, we always try to keep each other informed of, like, potential opportunity. One one gentleman, we had a conversation one day, and I was kind of frustrated. And I'm like, dude, how can these folks are, like, getting back with me? And he was like, you got to understand, these editors have to manage their staffers. They have to manage their freelancers. And then there are guys like you who they don't know who are trying to get work. And I was like, wow. And I didn't realize how competitive it was. Mm-hmm. So what were some of the things that you heard during those sit-downs with each of those editors that, that were invaluable to you? You know, when, when I was there, the meetings were, like, very limited. So I would just, you know, present my Invisible Wounds project. 
You know, I got a lot of great feedback, and a lot of the editors thought that I was passionate about you know, that project. Even though I didn't get any work out of it, I was always told that, hey, you know, keep pursuing that because you never know where it's going to take you. But um, I had a chance to meet with Rhea, Rhea Combs. She's the uh, curator of photography for the African American Museum. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't scheduled to meet with her. I was talking to Jim Estrin from the New York Times after the meeting. And uh, he said, hey, man, did you get to meet with Rhea? I said, nah. And I was sitting there talking to Jim, and I noticed that Rhea was wrapping up the last review of the day. And I said, hey, Jim, I'm going to go ahead and uh, try to talk to Rhea. And when I did, I left my laptop downstairs, and all I had was a cell phone. And you know, I told her where I was, and I told her about my project, and you know, I showed her the images, and you know, she was blown away. But uh, you know, one thing led to another. And I said, hey, you know, I really have some other images that I want to show you. And she said, sure. And I was like, do you really mind? I said, I know you've been here all day, and you know, we've been talking like longer than 15 minutes. So I went back, and I got my computer, and I showed some images that I captured at church. And um, I did a little series called The Power Praise. I, I go to a church in the D.C. area called the First Baptist Church of Glenard. I'm a member of the photography ministry. And, you know, for years I would, you know, photograph the church service. And, you know, we would have a lot of big speakers, you know, Reverend T.D. Jakes, sorry, Bishop T.D. Jakes, Mary Mary, Hezekiah Walker. And, you know, we would always focus on the stage. But I would like to focus on the crowd and the people mm-hmm. going to praise and worship. And, you know, once I showed her those pictures, you know, she was just like blown away. Like that fifteen minute conversation, like kind of turned to like an hour. Wow! Yeah, good for you taking that initiative, man. Well, I mean, and that's one thing you learn in the military. You know, got to take that initiative. You know, and that's what kind of you know separates you know the person who gets the assignment versus the person who doesn't get the assignment. One of the, I think, the bigger challenges that most people who really are, are not familiar with is it's not just about you making the photographs; it's about you writing them captions, and that. That is an art unto itself because you got to get a lot of information and you got to cram it into just a few sentences because without that, that information, the newspaper or the magazine is not going to use it. Tell me about learning that, that skill. You know, and like I tell people, I'm a photographer, not a writer. I hate writing. <laughs> I, I need to get better at it. D- depending on what I'm doing, if I'm going to go cover something like tomorrow, I think I'm slated to go back and do a follow-up with this lady that I shot during the shutdown, but I believe tomorrow's like our first day back to work since the um, shutdown. But, you know, I kind of have like a generic caption. So if I know I'm going to do something, and I'll try to sit at home and make a generic caption. And by doing a generic caption, it gives me the ability to file my photographs on, on the spot. You were talking about the, the complexity of, you know, writing caption. If you're out on assignment and depending on what you're working for, you may be dealing with something that's like time sensitive. Mm-hmm. So you want to kind of get that stuff back to the uh, newsroom, like ASAP, so those images can go up. So um, making sure that I have a template for the event that I'm covering kind of makes it a lot easier. So in terms of the, your current personal projects, you mentioned the one uh, that you've done with at your church. What else are you working on? Um, right now, you know, my, my biggest thing is the uh, PTSD project. I, I kind of took a break from it. I need to get back into it. I've been working with this... Uh, project, me and some of the guys from Black Shutter, and women, I'm sorry, but in my, he lives in Oakland, uh, Amir, and he told us yesterday that he managed to get us like an exhibit, so we're going to name it the Black Shutter Collective, everyone, you know, keep an eye out for us, and uh, I believe it's going to be in Sacramento. We're trying to get on the groundwork and, you know, prep for the show, 
So we're trying to get the groundwork done so that we can you know, get the show in Sacramento and uh, hopefully we can inspire some photographers, man, you know, young people of color, older people, and, you know, just get people to the art and, you know, spread out, spread the word to the community. Well, you know, you talked earlier about when you were a kid and being near the, uh, the military, the military station there and you interacting with the, uh, the soldiers there. When you're out in the community with your camera, do you have moments where kids are looking at you? And what do you think about when you see kids that are around the age that you were when they're looking at you with those cameras slung around you? Um, it, it depends, man. Like over the summer, um, buddy of mine, uh, Andre Chung, excellent photographer, he, he called me one day and he said, hey, man, I was supposed to, you know, link up with this, uh, this young lady and, you know, do some work, but I kind of had something to do. I'm just wondering if you could, uh, you know, help me out. I said, cool. Um, there was a, there were a program in Southeast D.C. working with children between the ages of 5 and 10. And uh, most of these kids were affected by violence in one form or another, whether a close family member was, was killed, shot, and they offered, you know, art therapy. So and I had to come in one week, and uh, I bought some prints in, bought my camera, of course, and uh, you know, I talked to the kids about my work. And, you know, the, the kids were impressed. Everyone wanted to touch the cameras, of course. And she was like, hey, no, you can't really touch it. But I said, you know what? It's only a camera that breaks, which I hope it doesn't, which it didn't. You know, you can always buy a new one. And, you know, uh, I let the kids fill the cameras, you know, because that kid could be the next Gordon Fox. Mm-hmm. You know, that kid could be the next Jamal's with that. And, and you know, with moments like that, you never know what influence you have. Because with me, yeah. there was uh, a pair of photojournalists that introduced us to processing film and making prints, and I only met them once. But that's that was all that it took. I wish I knew who their names were, but they did something that they probably have no no idea. They just thought that they taught a bunch of kids how to, you know, load a camera and process film, and that was it. So, and you were hooked. I mean, like, and and this impact even runs off to to adults. So, you know, I, I would get you know emails and DMs from you know service members, and you know even though they haven't played with my camera. But, you know, those guys looked at my work and like, yo, man, I don't really know you, but I was going to commit suicide until I saw your work. Uh-huh. And seeing that, you know, it, it, it makes you sad, but it also makes you happy knowing that, you know, your photograph had that, that impact to, you know, prevent someone from committing suicide. Yeah, we never know what... Uh, we never know. Yeah, you never know what kind of power and reach just you sharing your experience, whether it's in words and photographs or whatever can just be that one thing that keeps someone who's struggling uh, holding on. And, you know, and, and uh, go backtrack to, you know, the stuff that I'm working on. You know, one thing I want to start doing more, which I really can't get into it too much because of funding. Now, I, I want to start, you know, expanding and teaching veteran photography. You know, people who suffer with PTSD and other mental illnesses. I would like to go back to the inner city and, and do this, but, you know, to, to do these projects, I mean, it costs money. Yeah. You know, I read an article, I want to say it was like in the Washington Post. It was published by the VA. You know, the VA had, I want to say like $6.2 million allocated for suicide prevention funding. And, you know, that money was should have been used for like advertisements. Grace was kind of like the one I have on mm-hmm. for suicide prevention. But, you know, they only spent like 57 k And that's like less than like, what, 1%, oh, 2%? Man. Yeah, and I mean, I figure, you know, I'm not trying to bad talk to VA, but I mean, dude, you guys have this money that you're not using that could, you know, be used to like save lives. 
that's something I want to do. I'm going to get, you know, people into photography or, you know, whether it's photography, whether it's, you know, uh, writing, mm-hmm. you know, printmaking, you know, some, something that they can do to like take that energy and just center somewhere else to like get those bad thoughts out of their mind. Yeah, man. Cause you can't just sit on those feelings. Cause that'll just, that's the stuff that kills you is not being able yeah. to express it and get that stuff out. Like you, you found the camera that some sort of creative outlet can be in, uh, can be life-saving, literally. I mean, most definitely. I mean, think about it. You know, veterans and non-veterans, you know, people who suffer from mental illness or even those who aren't, like, clinically diagnosed, if they have something to, like, transfer the energy to, can you imagine how how much different the world would be? Hmm. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, people that, that go through issues, but if you have no one to talk to or no, nowhere to let it out, it's like you're piling up and all these feelings in you know, you're like a time bomb and boom. Yeah. But, you know, if you, if you had something to, somewhere to, you know, take that energy, I mean, you'll be surprised of, of the changes that can be made. You know, whether it's, you know, art, whether it's, uh, it, it can be anything, man. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Does it have to be one? <laughs> I try to hold people to one, man. All right, all right. Um, damn, man, that's like a that's a, that's a tough one, man. A, no offense, Black Shutter. Um, I can't recommend all you guys. So I had to pick one. Check out my man, Michael Santiago. Okay, why? Um, you know, I met Mike at the Portfolio Review last year. Mike's a Latino brother. I think he's Dominican. If I'm wrong, Mike, please forgive me. But, you know, once I met Mike, without knowing this guy, you know, he took me over like open arms. And he's a native New Yorker, freelancer. He does like really, really dope work. And like this guy's helped me out a lot. You know, if I have questions, you know, I can call this guy and talk to him. And, you know, I just learned a lot just by looking at his work. And, you know, if you think that I'm passionate about my work, this guy is like really, really, really passionate. You know, before I got on an assignment, uh, I might just go back and look at some of his work, you know, just to kind of like get that, that inspiration going. Oh, I look forward to checking out his work, man. Yeah. Well, thank you, Michael. It really was a, a pleasure and an honor to sit down and talk with you. So thank you for making time for me. No doubt, man. I truly enjoyed it. I'm, I'm just thankful to have the opportunity. You you have like a lot of heavy hitters on here, man. You know, Jamel, Valerie. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, damn. <laughs> well, now you're among them, man. Thanks to Mike for sharing his time and story with us. You can find out more about him and his work by visiting michaelamccoyphotography.com. And I'll be in Washington, D.C. in May for the Focus on the Story Photographic Conference. The International Photo Festival will feature some of the world's best photojournalists and documentary photographers, as well as talks, photo walks, workshops, of which I am teaching one. If you want to sign up for the workshop or just want to find out more about the event, visit FocusOnTheStory.org. And remember to check out my YouTube channel where I discuss different aspects of photography by pulling images from listeners like you who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr Pool. You can check out the TCF Flickr Pool and our YouTube channel by clicking on the link in the show notes and the website. 
My new book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. In it, I translate how to see and use light and shadow, line and shape, color and gesture to make great photographs. It's more than just how to make a good picture, but how you can develop a personal and intimate way of seeing and documenting the world around you. You can order the book today. When you place your order from the Rocky Nook website, use the promo code Perello 40 to receive 40% off the list price. Check out the website and the show notes for the link. And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frame, sign up for our mailing list and you'll receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks. And if you like what you're hearing on this show, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store as it helps our ranking and creates greater awareness of the show. Thanks to Anthony M. Photo from the U.S. and Marcus Daly from Canada for their five-star review. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Slavik Karwas, Patricia Tedeschi, Sundog Photography, Mark Staley, Paul Yan, Michael Connell, Charles Ulriker, and Cedar Wolf for their recent and generous contributions. I so appreciate it. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download the Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android, and it's free. Download it today. You'll find it where everything else is in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor. You can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at Ibarian X. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.